0: from the University of Sussex. Um, and Ron, it's really nice to address that um, second question in our list, which is uh, just what is it for um, philosophy and psychology, so research, into perception? What can they get from doing experiments? Thanks. Yeah, and thanks for, um, where's Tom? There Thanks for inviting me to speak here. I'm sorry, I'm a bit hoarse. I'm not sure why. But um, uh, Yeah, I'm gonna talk about that and a little bit about, I think it was question number one, but anyway. um, You can look at my position statement to see how they match to the questions. I won't mention the questions explicitly here. Um, Yeah, so you'll warn me when I have five minutes left or something, great. Okay, let's see if we can get this to um, work. (coughs) Great, okay. Uh, So here's an overview of what I'll be talking about. Three things. Uh, The first thing is I'm going to um, look at how uh, sensory augmentation research might assist in something that I call prosthetic artificial consciousness. Uh, So I'm going to propose that um, everybody here who's doing research into sensory augmentation or sensory substitution even uh, is actually doing something that could really help in this endeavor that I'll explain later. Uh, The second Part of the talk will be about some foundational issues concerning what are sensory modalities anyway and how can we individuate them. And lastly, I'll talk about why these issues matter to me and my research and two sub parts to that. Very quickly, a topic um, called synthetic phenomenology, which I think is about how um, is just one way that sensory augmentation research could assist in a science of consciousness. But um, also on a more philosophical um, Uh, bent um, talk about how sensory augmentation or substitution can assist in doing philosophy and that's a position I call interactive empiricism okay so part one Um, what is specific artificial consciousness well there's this field called artificial consciousness or sometimes called machine consciousness which is just the attempt to build artifacts that either have um, conscious states or By building these artifacts, you attempt to understand natural conscious states. Um, So the artifacts might not themselves have conscious states, but they still might. Building them might help you um, understand consciousness. And um, for this (coughs) enterprise, I'm I'm part of this community of machine consciousness, artificial consciousness. If there's a a new journal out, just the first issue of the journal is just appearing soon called the International Journal of Machine Consciousness. there's a growing interest in this field, and there's a problem in this field, which is there's a gap between the third-person enterprise of engineering and first-person aspects of consciousness, which is which are really the subject of the discipline. And in particular, how can you um, how is this approach supposed to work? How could building stuff, which is this third-person activity, illuminate or or create s- things with first-person states? How could you tell whether or not you've succeeded. How can you measure progress? Um, so there is this um, pro- epistemological problem, which I can't really go into a lot of detail motivating, but I hope you can see the the general problem. Um, but really, uh, there's a distinction that one can make in trying to do artificial consciousness between autonomous artificial consciousness and prosthetic artificial consciousness. And autonomous artificial consciousness is the kind of Uh, let's build commander data kind of thing. Let's build uh, a robot, an artificial creature that has conscious states. That's an interesting goal, and um, I'm sure attempting it will tell us a lot about consciousness. But there's another approach that people in the artificial consciousness community or machine consciousness community could take, which is prosthetic artificial consciousness, and that's the approach of creating new experiences by altering or extending Uh, the agent-based processes that enable them in systems that are already naturally conscious. So we're using artificial, we're using technology to alter or extend experiences in, say, humans. Um, And I think that can still be continuous with the artificial consciousness or machine consciousness methodology and goals of trying to understand uh, consciousness by having some kind of control over the substrates of consciousness and being able to systematically alter them and study the effects. And we can study the effects in a way in, with prosthetic, prosthetic artificial consciousness, we can study the effects in a way that we can't study them in the case of autonomous artificial consciousness because we can ask the person how their consciousness, h- conscious experiences have been altered. Or we can, for instance, uh, we know human psychology well so we can, in addition to asking them, use other kinds of probes. So, machine consciousness in the autonomous sense, ar- artificial consciousness that's autonomous, has this big epistemological gap. Aesthetic artificial consciousness can close this gap um, at least somewhat. Uh, at least, um, it doesn't have exactly the same problems. I think uh, its problems are more tractable than those of machine consciousness, autonomous machine consciousness. So. Um, I say in a recent paper, artificial consciousness might contribute to our understanding of consciousness as much by systematically altering or extending consciousness as by replicating it. So the idea here is that any of you out there who are doing, who are designing sensory augmentation devices or sensory substitution devices, you really are engaging in prosthetic artificial consciousness. You might not have realized that, but you are. And therefore, I think you have a lot to contribute to and also benefit from engaging with the community of artificial consciousness and contributing to and reading the journals in that field, etc. So I think there's a lot of possible cross-pollination here that's uh, a potential cross-pollination that isn't going on yet as that much. It could be a lot better. Um, so I'd, I'd look forward to that. Um, part two now is about some foundational issues in <coughs> sensory augmentation research. What is sensory augmentation anyway? Um, I think, um, uh, um, Malika and Andy's talks are very useful in this regard, and I just want to continue the discussion that went on there. Um, so prior even to asking what is sensory augmentation, we can ask, well, what is a sense modality, and what is perception? And you might think, well, come on, we must philosophers can't be that. Well, maybe you do realize that philosophers um, persist in asking the simplest questions. But um, what is perception is actually a, still a controversial issue. I mean, I was... Um, and not really having a clear answer to that question of what is perception can lead to some problematic views. So I was at a conference last week in honor of the late Susan Hurley, and the last speaker at the conference was um, a, ver- uh, a philosopher that I respect immensely, Ru- Ruth Millikan, and she presented a view in which she claimed language is a form of direct perception of the world. So when, when somebody tells you um, that... Um, there's some music playing in the lobby of IDS. They tell you that here. Um, according to Ruth Millikan, because you understand language, you have actually perceived that there is music playing in the lobby of IDS right now. Matter of fact, you heard that there is music playing in the lobby of IDS. Now, I think that's, I'm not, I don't have time to go into the, the problems with that position. I think it is a problematic position. I think it's violating our intuition that you know, we, when we hear the music by being there, that's what it means to hear. Um, music playing in IDS. When somebody tells us that using language, we get the information, but we wouldn't count it as hearing the music. Um, We heard that there is music playing, but we didn't hear the music itself. So I think that wouldn't count as a case of perceiving the music. Um, We perceived, maybe in some strange indirect way, that there is music playing there. Um, Now, how can you resist that kind of problematic view that you don't really have time to do justice to or, or, or go into detail about the problems of? Well. I think what's wrong with that picture is um, is uh, a failure to distinguish between two kinds of uh, uh, content, sensory content that go on in perception. There's uh, the conceptual content of perception, which is sort of like the facts that you get through perceiving the world, and then there's the non-conceptual content, which is more has to do with, um, in traditional terms, you'd say it's the what it's likeness. That the, ten- the temptation is to start talking about qualia, but it's different from qualia in that Um, It's still content. It's still about the world. It still can be true or false, right or wrong. It's just that it's not the everyday, uh, they aren't facts in the sense of um, uh, the everyday facts that we talk about, like whether or not there's music playing in IDS, but more like facts about our sensory surface and sensory motor expectations of what kinds of uh, reflectances our visual system would expect to receive if a particular Move were made, a particular muscle contraction was made, very fine-grained kinds of content that don't yet get to the level of objects and properties that we talk about when we normally talk about propositional uh, conceptual content. So the idea that maybe you could stop this crazy view of Millikan's and get a better idea about what perception is by saying that um, perception is a special case of when the non-conceptual contents of your experience are they're related in a special privileged way to the conceptual contents of your experience. When I'm actually hearing the band playing in IDS or hear the music playing in the lobby of IDS, um, there's I, I do get the conceptual fact, hey, there's some music playing, but I do it by virtue of having non-concept experiences with non-conceptual content of a particular sort that relates to that fact, whereas when I just hear somebody tell me that, the ex- non-conceptual content of that experience has to do with the sound of their voice, and, or maybe somebody wrote it um, on uh, a real whiteboard. Maybe they wrote it there. There's music in, uh, in the lobby of IDS. You're welcome to attend. The non-conceptual content of that experience has to do with marks on a whiteboard and visual content. It doesn't have anything to do with the, fa- um, the, the relationship between that non-conceptual content of what it's looked like to see that whiteboard, and the fact that there's music playing in IDS is very different than the relationship between the non-conceptual content I experience when I'm actually in that room listening to the music. I think these kinds of issues are going to be very useful thinking about this relation that is the perception relation. It's going to be very useful for understanding when a a particular technology is providing sensory augmentation or sensory substitution or something else. But um, I really don't have too much time to go into that proposal. Um, So Andy said some things about sensory modalities I found very interesting, very useful to think about. Um, so this is uh, my summary of some of the things he said at one point in his talk. He said there's this qualia-based view of, of, of sensory modalities. Um, that That is the view that there's a principal distinction between them. And then one idea is that maybe we should stop trying to really look for a sharp distinction between sensory modalities and instead adopt a, a content-based view of perception where really um, perceptions and sensations are really exhausted by their... The content that they provide to us, and really there's no kind of sharp distinction between such contents maybe maybe would, I mean Andy put this forward rather tentatively I think maybe the um, relate the distinction between these contents is only a matter of degree, and therefore there's really no real objective distinction between sensory modalities or in any sharp sense. Um, well, I think um, we I think maybe we could reject that dichotomy between qualia based views of experience and content-based user experience. I tend to agree with Andy that content's the way to go, and talking about qualia is very problematic. But I think even when you uh, try to understand perception as purely content involving, that is, uh, putting some condition on the world, rather than these ghostly things that can't be scientifically investigated, qualia, um, I I still think you can uh, make sense of a principled qualitative distinction between sensory modalities on that content-based view without having to embrace the problematic notion of qualia. So how could you make sense of this? How could you find principal distinction between perceptual contents that recreates, reconstructs, at least to some degree, our intuitions that there are sharp distinctions between sensory modalities? Well, one idea might be that (coughs) you can cluster together perceptual contents in according to a relation you might call imaginative or epistemic closure. So if possession of um, all the rest of these sets of perceptual contents enables you to know what it would be like to have the other one that you don't, that you don't have the ability, that you haven't had before, um, then that would suggest they're all in a clump, whereas if possession of all of these perceptual contents, that is knowing what it would be like to have an experience of that perceptual content, doesn't ipso facto, doesn't by that very fact give, give you the ability to imagine what it's like to have one of these perceptual contents, then that suggests they are different sensory modalities. Yeah, it's on the next slide. This is a, a technical version of that. So a set S of contents are in the same modality if and only if for all the contents in that set Knowing the rest of the contents in that set would give you the ability to know what it's like. Knowing what it's like to have all the rest of the contents in that set would know what it's, would give you the ability to know what it's like to have that one that we've left out. So if there's this closure relationship between them, then that suggests the same modality. So intuitively, let's let, talk about uh, auditory contents and visual contents. Um, uh, if you could know what it's like to have every kind of visual experience, except for this one particular Uh, Sorry, take one particular visual experience, a visual experience of, say, a particular shade of blue, to use an example from history of empiricism. Um, It's it's plausible that somebody who, um, if you know what it's like to have all the visual experiences except for that particular shade of blue, that will imply that you'll have the ability to know what it would be like to have that particular shade of blue experience. But also intuitively, um, knowing, having the ability to imagine what it's like to have all those visual experiences won't help you at all to imagine what it's like to have a particular visual experience, any visual experience. i uh, sorry, auditory experience, auditory experience. So um, that's the intuition is that the people who have, have never had any visual experiences find it very difficult to imagine what it would be like to even have one visual experience. All their auditory contents don't help them in that. Um, so it's, it's just a first pass at how you might make a division between the sensory modalities by looking at uh, relations between clumpings of uh, perceptual contents. I'm not really, that's not the main point of this talk. It's just meant to give an example of how we might proceed in this area without without being forced to choose dichotomously between either content-based views of perception or qualia-based views of perception. Okay, well, why do this? Who cares? Why should we care about coming up with distinctions between the modalities? Why would we, why does this matter? Well, um, I think uh, one reason why it matters to me in the case of science is that I'm interested in the science of consciousness. And one thing that you have to do when doing a science of consciousness is come up with a precise way of specifying the contents of of conscious experiences. To specify, if you want to have a science of something, you better specify the thing that you're trying to explain very precisely. And also, you want to use uh, experiences to explain, for instance, behavior. So you want to be able to precisely specify experiences if you want to give precise explanations of behavior. So if we're going to develop means of precisely specifying uh, experiences, then um, one way to do that is um, a technique that I call uh, synthetic phenomenology. OK, my remote's not working. Right, so synthetic phenomenology is a particular way of specifying experiences precisely, using artifacts to assist you in that. Um, that might seem a strange idea, and I don't have time to elaborate on it in detail. But the previous examples of synthetic phenomenology that I've focused on in my research have been using the states of robots presented in a particular way to the scientist as a way for the scientist to know which conscious experience that robot is modeling. Well. Another idea is to oh this is not working so. Another idea is to um, instead use different kinds of technology, not ro- robots, but use sensory augmentation technology to assist you in uh, specifying the contents of experience. Um, for instance, the range of experiences that any given scientist might be able to have is a subjective matter about them, and yet the science of consciousness should aspire to be objective. So by using sensory substitution and sensory augmentation, we might allow, uh, uh, using technologies like that, we might allow a scientist to grasp a broader range of experiential contents, know which content is being explained or um, specified in a science of consciousness. So that's a way in which uh, these devices might assist in a science of consciousness. Um, I want to quite quickly move on to the last topic. Now even the um, the next, even the keys on my computer doesn't. Okay, so uh, the last issue is how sensory augmentation relates to philosophy, and um, philosophy is, I don't have time for all of these slides, I'm running out of time, so philosophy is basically, in the view that I'm assuming here, is conceptual analysis, and works with a, a stock set of concepts. Um, basically a static set of concepts, uh, and it it analyzes them and tries to find conceptual dependencies between them. So on the traditional view of philosophy, there's a sharp distinction between philosophical inquiry, uh, which is a priori, and scientific inquiry, which is a posteriori, that is empirical. Um, And so on the traditional view, you have this set of basic concepts and the way you make philosophical progress is you create new propositions out of them and find new dependencies between the concepts that maybe you weren't uh, aware of before. Well, um, there are limits to that. I think some conceptual problems, conceptual problems, so philosophical problems, Can only be solved not by just recombining the concepts you already have and coming up with new propositions that are expressed in terms of that basic stock but by coming up with new concepts and conceptual traditional analytic philosophy doesn't really talk about that at all about how to come up with new concepts of a subject matter they only sit they talk about what you can do given a particular static set of concepts, what you can do with them to manipulate them in order to come up with uh, illuminating answers. But sometimes the answer will require a new concept. So we need a different methodology. And uh, what I have uh, suggested before is that we uh, extend the philosophical method by coming up with uh, techniques using technology to extend to give us new kinds of experience that will give us new concepts that will allow us to solve old philosophical problems about perception, consciousness, um, et cetera. So this is different from traditional empiricism, which says everything, every idea, every concept must be based on uh, experience of the world. It's saying, um, yeah, maybe uh, a qu- um, a not only do acquiring concepts require experience, but it requires a particular kind of experience, a kind of interaction with a subject matter um, in a way that's, um, for those who are aware of what goes on, say, in uh, uh, there's a cognitive science example of cat vision developing the cat's kittens can only develop um, the ability to see if they interact, if there's an interleaving of their actions and sensations of the right sort. Well, I'm making an analogy between that and the right concepts of, say, consciousness. You can only have the right concepts of consciousness. You can only be able to see the critical conscious phenomena as a scientist of consciousness if you have uh, the right kind of experience of the relation between your interventions and uh, the results of your experimentation. So um, I'll skip this. So what Aaron and Sloman and I said in 2003 was that replication or even modeling of consciousness in machines requires some clarifications and refinements of our concept of consciousness and design of, construction of, and interaction with artificial systems can itself in assist in that, c- thi- that conceptual development. Well, this is to emphasize autonomous artificial consciousness, but what, if going back to the very beginning of the talk, what I'd like to say is also prosthetic artificial consciousness can play a similar role here. So Sloman and I didn't think about that in our example in 2003 but the same process uh, um, applies. The idea, if you build prosthetic artificial consciousness devices, that might allow you to develop your uh, concept of consciousness. So um, I'll skip this. Uh, There's a a talk on the web that I would, if you're interested in this issue of interactive empiricism, um, which is very closely related to some of the issues that uh, Tom was talking about, only I'm I'm more interested in the particular uh, way that and challenges uh, that are involved in in transforming concepts um, that in, in particular how, how prosthetic AC can help us do that and sensory substitution can help us do that if you 're interested in it, there are some uh, talks of mine on the uh, web that um, are mentioned there 's a link in the in the abstract booklet i 'm trying to move <laughs> on, but my computer is not allowing me um, so um, I think the inactive torch is an example of a device that can let us do this kind of conceptual development. And these are the last two slides. Um, you might have been involved in the empirical study that was going on um, that we were conducting with the inactive torch. The idea there is we want to empirically measure the extent to which experience with a sensory substitution device like the inactive torch can result in a change in your concepts of perception. Um, and so we asked subjects, uh, well, we gave statements to subjects, as many of you know, and asked them to indicate their degree of assent or dissent from the statement. And that was bef- both before and after they used the inactive torch. And the idea is that w- we can look at their responses and maybe in some cases see evidence of a change in their concept of perceptions, uh, perception and um, maybe correlate that with other data that we took about the use of the device, maybe certain modes of using the inactive torch. Um, will be more indicative of a greater change to your concept than others. Um, and last, the last slide is just um, talking about some problems in this. How can we measure change in a concept? The, if, if what I said before was true, then you can't just ask people, how is your concept of perception changed? Because if they can linguistically express the change in their con- concepts, then really... That's a case of the propositional conceptual change that I said wouldn't isn't sufficient for resolving some uh, changes some re- resolving some conceptual problems in philosophy. But rather, maybe we can ask them questions, but look for the non-propositional effects on their responses. So not just what they say, but how quickly they say it, or the degree of confidence that they express in what they say, or the degree of assent or dissent in what they say. So. Here we're bordering on, uh, well, we're enga- engaging in a field called uh, experimental philosophy and trying to um, see. I actually, I'm not, I'm not so sure. It's more like experimental psychology of philosophy. It isn't philosophy itself, but it's more studying how philosophical views, that is your, cons- your stock of concepts involved in philosophy, might change as a result of particular interactive experiences. So that's it. Thanks.